Hey guys, this is your host Shane with Radical Rocks. Today we've got an exciting episode. We're going to do all about the colors of opal, some interesting gold mining history of the Eastern Sierras, the penis worm, and so much more. That's right, radical rocks are everywhere, and today we are going to talk about rocks, minerals, fossils, and so much more. Um, we're going to talk about beautiful diamond that sells, um, birthstones, the wonderful birthstones of fall, a field trip that you might want to get in on, the largest bird possibly ever in the world was found in Australia, and yes, you heard it, the penis worm, and what is up with this ancient fossil he has a donut shaped brain bizarre we'll talk about that how about making money selling rocks well and then finally the colors of opal and if we have time we'll go into some stories on the eastern sierra mines so let's get right into it guys i want to thank you all for liking and subscribing it really helps us get the show out there um, we're trying to build our audience, so we appreciate you listening. We appreciate you subscribing. That really gets us up there in the rankings, and that way more people who try to look up topics in this genre will find us and hopefully be able to find some education, maybe a slight tiny bit of entertainment, and that's where we're headed. You can come check us out. Look up Radical Rocks. We're on pretty much most social media We've got our YouTube videos where we do lapidary, um, gym trips, and other fun stuff. So check that out. Sounds like my cats are getting into something. So let's get right into it. Um, one gold mine called the Osella Gold Mine in Esmeralda County, Nevada, was uh, on the auction block at eBay. It's not on the auction block anymore. I don't know if they sold it or what. But there's some interesting history about this area. Um, this claim is in an area. It has a couple of shafts, several pits, piles and tailings. It's only 160 feet from uh, one of the little dirt roads that goes up there. It's a great area potentially for placer claiming. And um, it's about seven miles west from Goldfield, Nevada, where the largest gold mining boom in the United States took place for a short period of time. Produced some five million ounces in gold, grades up to one ounce per ton in many areas. Um, and some even got up to 103 ounces of silver. The Montezuma district in this area is known for rich silver chloride ores or horn silver, as it's known, and some high-grade gold. So this is a really cool area. If you wanted to go out in this area and just check out some of these gold mines, please be careful. Please don't uh, take anything from any claimed mines. But from Goldfield, Nevada, you would drive north on the 95 for about 4.6 miles 
take a lift, uh, left rather, on Silver Peak Road, about seven miles, Silver Peak Road, then take a left on Hot Springs Road, and it's about 6.3 miles, and a left uh, will take you to this claim that was for sale. But the whole area is full of really cool um, mining claims and a lot of neat gold history. So this mining uh, mineral here, they tell us that it has a lot of potential, and I am trying to tell you some about the history. Hopefully, this is not freezing up. Description, and it is freezing up. Well, that's not good. Okay, here we go. Got it, sorry. Some of the history in the Montezuma district, it was discovered in 1867 and began production shortly thereafter. The district shipped ore to Belmont for milling in 1887. The district was inactive until about 1905 when the Tonopah and Goldfield booms brought in new prospectors in the area. The district was revived in production and produced shipments until about 1923. The nearby Goldfield boom was one of the largest and last of the old-time mining booms. Goldfield was originally discovered by prospectors from Tonopah in 1902. Five million ounces of gold were produced from 1904 to 1960. At least that's what was reported. The bulk of production was in the 1904 to 1920 period. The mines were mostly from World War II. Small amounts of intermediate production have taken place since. Recently, in 2022, some large international mining company acquired the Central Goldfield District Project from Waterton for $206 million. There's still gold in the area. The geology um, in this area is... um, covers most of Nevada and is in northeast trending mountain ranges between flat valleys and basins. They have parallel high-density strike-slip faults extending from Reno to Las Vegas along the California-Nevada border. Faulting and volcanic activity make the Walker Lane favorable for hosting gold and silver and these deposits are found there, and some of the most famous precious metal districts in the United States, including the Comstock, Goldfield, Tonopah, Bullfrog, Mineral Ridge, and Round Mountain are along this area. So kind of cool, little gold mining uh, uh, information there. So the penis worm, yes, I'm, I'm not joking. The penis worm's ancient cousin fossilized with its donut-shaped brain. Pretty bizarre. Um, at lifescience.com, they have an article here by Nicoletta Lanis, who tells us about this uh, Cambrium age uh, worm. And this critter, <laughs> why they named it that? Well, you can only guess, but it has a tiny little donut brain in its head, um, and it is quite unusual. It's a marine species of worm. They feel it's extinct, but who knows? They might still be down there somewhere. And uh, the embryos inside this, when these are tiny, the embryos are only about a half a millimeter or 0.02 inches across. So it looks like um, this one here is a miniature penis worm, which gives scientists the idea of what a mature uh, one might have looked like. 
And uh, so they've got these pictures. They've scanned this fossil here, and they were able to look at its brain and study it. Very bizarre. This thing is all tissue, uh, muscle. There's really no bone or anything like that in it. So uh, getting a really good fossil of these type of creatures, aside from an imprint where you could actually scan it and see the brain, it would be amazing. They um, used high-powered x-rays produced by an accelerator to take the snapshots, and uh, they went through and rotated 180 degrees within the beam and took 1,501 x-rays as it goes on through. And then these x-rays can be assembled and detailed into the 3D model that allows them to peer inside this embryo without having to cut it open or smash it open or destroy it. So this way they're able to study it. So kind of bizarre, but yet interesting. Gemstones. I had to share this one. I'm, I'm not one to share metaphysical um, things on gemstones. I'm more about the stories. I used to do human interest stuff occasionally, uh, quite a bit. I don't do it too much anymore because there's just so many great stories. Uh, I want to get you the most interesting. I, I go through hundreds of stories, filter out the best stories for you and the best information so that you can have that at your hand. And also a lot of information repeats itself a lot. So I have to filter through all that as well. But this story I had to share with you, even though, again, I don't uh, do metaphysics um, on the show much because uh, that's just not what our focus is. But this one is the Global News Insider. And you can go to globalnewsinsider.com. And the title caught my eye. It says, wearing this gemstone will cure every disease comma, better health. So they're promising here that this, I'm not promising you this. I think it's boulder dash, right? <laughs> As our friends in Britain would say, I think it's complete BS. Um, but <laughs> that's what they say. And you can read this article if you want. Just go to the Global Insider. They specifically talk about emeralds being the gemstone of choice that is going to... Uh, help with disease and cure disease and help with all these diseases. So <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. I love emeralds. Um, maybe I should get one. Maybe I'll feel better. I think I'll feel better just because I love emeralds. All right. A new fossil in Australia could be the world's largest bird species to ever walk the earth. Louise Fran Franco tells us at Natural World News all about this wonderful discovery that they found, uh, that our friends down under found, looking around there for these rocks. This bird, they've got some pictures of its bones and its talons. They haven't completely unearthed it yet, so they don't know what the wing, they don't have the wing size here. This thing is called the um, dinosaur duck or demon duck. Also, it is a true size uh, Thunderbird, according to this article, and they say that this Thunderbird here is its body was 10 feet long, just its body, and this bird weighed up to half a ton. That's a thousand pound bird, okay? A thousand pound bird. I, I imagine its wings are going to be pretty big. This demon duck 
would have probably flown around eating sea creatures and uh, uh, raining havoc and ruling the skies. The bones are shown here of the feet with the talons, quite impressive. Someone has their legs sticking out with one of the leg bones. The leg bone of the bird is much larger than this grown adult man. It was a colossal bird. Um, and like I said, they are still kind of digging it up and learning more and more about these fossilized bones. Quite, quite spectacular. So check that out. Hopefully we'll get some more information. That's one I'd like to hear updates on. Our friends at Rio Grande, by the way, none of these companies or, or the eBay listing, none of this stuff has anything to do with me. They don't sponsor the show. I'm just telling you because it's interesting. I want to share it with you. I like to get a little gold mining. I like to get a little fossils. I like to get a little gemstones. I like to get some you know, lapidary. Whatever we can get in there, we will. So it is a new month. We are in October, and we are getting ready for fall. And Rio Grande, our friends at Rio Grande, there's a, they're a good place to get supplies if you are into silversmithing or into lapidary. They have a lot of cut gemstones. They claim that these are not, uh, these are uh, ethically obtained. A lot of them are from even U.S. mines, but the fall colors are what caught my attention. I love the fall. Some of the leaves, we have mostly pine trees up here in Idaho where I'm at, but some of the leaves of the smaller oaks and stuff are starting to change. And the people who have smoke trees and maples, those are starting to change as well, and they're quite beautiful. Fire citrine is a beautiful orangish golden color. Um, they have a large double uh, A grade stones they have available. Uh, citrine, golden citrine is, uh, they call the, the amber one, they call it fire citrine. Golden citrine is more of a yellow citrine. They have triple A grade cut gemstones. The fire citrine oval is another beautiful dark orange uh, color that you can obtain if you want to look at some of their faceted gemstones. They also have gemstones cut in cabochons. So citrine, also golden topaz. I believe they have uh, uh, simulated and, and actual dug up topaz as well. But some of these come from some really nice mines that you can check out if you want to do a little research on this website. It can be quite enjoyable to look at these uh, different colors. Golden citrine kite. Um, this is a kite-shaped gemstone cut to look like a kite, kind of. Real pretty. Um, you can check these out if you want because it's fall and those are the colors. Map of where to find water on Mars. Now, of course, this is just speculation, but at uh, visualcapitalist.com, they have an animated map here where Mars is turning around. You have a view of the uh, bottom of the planet. You have a view of the top of the planet. Um, they are rotating as if it were rotating and orbiting. They tell you about the hydrous clays, the hydrous sulfites, the carbonate salts, and the hydrous silica that they believe is a water-based minerals. Um, by the way, these don't absolutely have to be water, but these are indications that water might have been on the planet. So now they're trying to use equipment to determine if there might be water below the surface. So that has been mapped out. 
and that is what you are looking at here, where these maps are. Uh, apparently, they think it would be probably salt water, and they also have a picture of what Mars might have looked like with its ocean, where they think the ocean might have been, and uh, they display a planet largely covered with water. Um, so, interesting. You can check that out if you want. It's free. Um, the article that is there is by Mark Bielan. And again, that's at visualcapitalist.com if you want to check that out. A rare pink diamond that we've talked about went up for bid and it sold. Um, the total price, uh, all their fees and all that, he had to spend $57.7 million. It was sold in Hong Kong. And uh, truly a beautiful, beautiful pink gemstone. According to Sotheby's, the 11.15 Wilmanson Pink Star fetched a uh, total $57.7 Second highest price ever paid at auction for any jewel, they said. Um, it was an undisclosed buyer from uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and... They estimated it would sell at $21 million, so it sold for twice that. The number one record for a pink diamond was in, was set in 2017 when a stone known as a CTF pink star was sold in Hong Kong for $71.2 million. Wow, incredible. The largest known pink diamond is the Daria I. Noor, discovered in India and weighs an estimated 180 Two carats. These are extremely rare to find high quality pink diamonds. How to make money selling rocks. Now we've got that. We've got all the colors of opals and we've got a great story about the Sierras if we don't run out of time. Um, so let's talk about how to make money selling rocks. Again, this is not financial advice. I'm just giving information to you to look at, do your own research at kinged.com. The uh, article of how to make money selling rocks, they give you 25 powerful ways and tips by Brian Matthews, and we'll go over it real quick after I get a swig of coffee. Ah, delicious. All right, so you can make money selling rocks. I have tried. I've done gym shows where you don't always get a whole lot for uh, run-of-the-mill gemstones. Usually when you do gem and rock shows, you're doing them in your local area. And guess what? Everybody else probably has about the same rocks that you have. Um, one thing you can do is try to make things out of them. That might increase the value. But let's go on with some of these tips. Um, they talk about all the different types of things you can sell. Um, you know, people try to sell antiques and collectibles and things like that. But today, we are talking about rocks. Um, they give their example where they had uh, sold some things of their own, some rocks, I guess, and then goes into one of the things you want to do is know how much your rocks are worth. Let's say you inherited a collection. You may want to do a little research. Um, you're probably not going to get a fraction of what you see it being sold for, but perhaps, you know, at least that gives you some kind of uh, number. So if you're seeing, oh, you know, somebody's selling this rock and they're selling it rough and it's selling for $20 a pound, 
then you know that's probably a wholesale price. But if you see it's cut up in slabs and they're selling the slabs for 20 bucks a piece and you've got buckets and buckets of slabs, you know, you might hope to get a buck a piece for selling the bulk, you know. Um, that's kind of how it works. If you have mineral collection and you go online and you see these minerals and they're selling for 50 to thousands of dollars for a small mineral that you could hold in your hand and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to get millions of dollars. Believe me, it will take you a lifetime to sell them. And um, you, you know, can only hope to get a fraction of what they cost. So just remember, like jewelry markup is 100, 200 percent. Most things that are sold retail are bought at a fraction with gemstones, unless it's a really hot item that is super popular, um, you know, you um, are not going to get what you're seeing it listed on the websites for. You probably won't even get a quarter of that because whoever has to get that mineral has to market it. They have to hold it. Um, they have to sell it. They have to package it and ship it. They have to drive around and do shows. There's a lot of costs associated with it. It's not just that that gemstone is worth what you see on there. So be aware of that when you get your appraisal or you do your own appraisal. You can buy books. They recommend here uh, Peterson's Field Guide to Rocks and Minerals. They recommend the Audubon's Field Guide to North American Rocks and Roads. Uh, and they recommend Simon & Schuster's Guide to Rocks and Minerals. I don't think they're going to give you cost but it might help you in identifying. Or you could watch one of my videos. I've got several videos on how to identify rocks. Join others. Um, join a lapidary or mineral club. I'm always, I'm always telling and promoting you guys to join a local lapidary or rock hounding club or rock and mineral club. You can go to rocktumbler.com and look up various clubs. There's also associations for rock hounding groups through your state and the, Feder the Federation of Minerals. Uh, Mineralogical Societies is another one that you can go to and look up. Um, so there's that. Um, guides. We talked about some guides. There's field guides that you can buy for rocks that are regional that you might be able to buy. I found in museums sometimes have books that you can't find anywhere else that specialize on local gemstones and rocks. So you may want to do that. Um, they also recommend there is a group called uh, mindsocam.org. It's M-I-N-S-O-C-A-M.org. Identifying the rocks, we talked about that. Um, you will want to identify them. You can do that by finding people. You can learn how to do it yourself. Some of the key things to identify rock is its hardness. Is it as hard as a diamond or is it as soft as talcum powder? Uh, the streak test, this is where you take the back of a tile that's porous and you, you, you grind the rock against the back and see if there's a color of streak. Cleavage, this is the way it breaks. Um, luster is the rock, the way it looks. Is it, is it gritty and grainy? Is it, is it uh, clear? Is it, op you know, is it like milk glass? These things will help you know um, fibers and uh, things like that will let you know as well. So photograph, you can photograph it. Um, 
and send that off to diff- join different rock groups on different social media. They may help you identify it. I have a group on MeWe. There's groups on all sorts of social media that you can check out. But you're going to need a photograph anyway if you're going to sell it. So take a lot of rocks. Um, if they are special rocks and you are wanting to sell them individually, then take really good pictures and um, do that. Uh, they say maybe a garage sale. I have not had good luck with a garage sale. I would not recommend that. Organize your rock collection. Identify everything you can. Use index card, mineral labels. Organize boxes or compartments. Separate everything. You can do it with computer files. You can use uh, software to make little cards. Other ways, whatever way you can make your display uh, for your collection when you are selling it or when you are presenting it for for pictures. Make sure it's labeled. Um, Catalog whatever you can. If these are minerals, um, any information that is on them, make sure that you have the boxes and the labels that they are matching, that it is proper. This can also add value to your uh, minerals and rocks by knowing more about them. I know when I'm selling slabs, if I know more about the slab, um, that can can help me identify it to a particular rarer slab or something. Otherwise, I may just have to sell it as a, a, a slab or um, an agate or a jasper or what is it, whatever it is, and just kind of generalize and I don't get as much money for it in that case. You can sell to dealers. Um, dealers get offers to buy collections all the time. This is going to be the low end of your price range. You will only get a fraction of uh, what you think it's worth. And uh, you may take that as an insult. But if you just don't want the rocks because you've inherited them. I've seen people literally bury rock collections worth thousands of dollars in their yard. And um, I've actually dug them out. In fact, one collection was buried in a yard and I dug there for almost two years I dug out about a thousand pounds of gemstones. Uh, many of the gemstones I got were from areas you could no longer collect from anymore. So this was a really uh, nice treasure for me. None of them were extremely rare and valuable minerals, unfortunately. Um, but uh, some of them were are getting rare now, and you just can't find some of those type of specimens. So it was nice to be able to dig that up. If you see some spectacular individual pieces that you want to sell, or you're going to take the time to do that, um, remember people will pick through your collection and want to buy the best of what you have. They will not want, if you have, let's say you have a bunch of uh, tricolored jasper and uh, some of it has pits and holes and some of it you know, is, is, uh, got moss and some of it doesn't, they're going to want the best first. So, um, and then you're going to be left with the stuff that's difficult to sell. So what I've done is I, I high grade through collections that I buy and then, um, I donate the more common stuff to clubs. I've done that many times. Craft fairs. Um, these are good. Um, they're not great, but they're good. You will make money on a craft fair. If you have a variety Um, of rocks and minerals. Kids love rocks and minerals. Kids love fossils. So be sure and have those out there. You will attract those kids and they will want to stay there. And if you have just a big pile of rocks that they can dig through, you know, especially if they're polished, 
um, they will, they will, their parents are stuck. They, <laughs> the parents are going to be stuck coming back to get the kids. So, um, yeah, everybody loves rocks and minerals. You will sell. I make jewelry and have rocks, and I usually make most of my money from jewelry and novelty items, and the actual rough rocks and gemstones, I don't hardly sell that much at all. So that's just the way it works. eBay, you could try eBay. A lot of times eBay lets you um, sell from time to time. We'll let you list some for free. Um, I've sold a few rocks on eBay. It hasn't been spectacular for me. You really need to build up uh, um, a big list of people who buy from you. Shopify, this is one I have not tried. A lot of people have good success with Shopify. Um, you got to know your competition, according to the article. Flea markets, they say, are good. I, I would say flea markets are like craft shows. Those, those would be good. Be sure to sell the things that um, people are going to want, though, if you're going to sell there. It's not the place to really sell a rock hounder's collection of rough. Home business, you can do it from home. Presentation is everything. He goes into that. Um, again, you may want to just keep these gemstones, this gemstone material, and make lapidary out of it. Make cabochons, make jewelry, make interesting things. Um, and if you decide that you love rocks, gems, and minerals, you will want to buy more. So you're going to have to go out there and find out where to buy more material if you are producing a lot. Um, figure out how much time and capital... Make sure you have a great personality. Advertising and marketing might be something you want to do. Of course, you can do social media. There's newspaper. I always talk about Rock and Gym magazine. That's uh, you can get a small ad in there if you want. I don't know, you know, how much customers it will bring you, but there you go. Um, they have a facts, answers, and questions section here to find out how much your rock is worth. Um, it's kind of some really doesn't tell you, but they give you a few tips to see how hard it is and things like that. So those are some of the general tips in how to sell rocks and make money. All right, we are going to go into Opal's, possibly, because the article disappeared. So now I got to try to find it. I also wanted to tell you a little story about the mines of the Eastern Sierra. and uh, But I want to tell you about the opals first. So if you could just bear with me, my, uh, my site disappeared. I had it up here, my webpage. And you know how it is here. We do one take and that's it. Okay, what are common opal colors? Hopefully it will come back up for me. I have clicked on it. It was here a minute ago. All right, I think it's popping up. Okay, our friends at Rock and Jim tell us about the common opal. So, you know, there's fire opal, but that's not really common opal. That's more like rare opal. That's more like precious opal. Um, but without the glittering multicolor opalescence, there still is some... some opalescence like when you think of like moonstone which is um you know a feldspar which has water trapped in it and it gives it kind of a uh, a moon look right a kind of a a glowing 
color. So opal definitely has a different look to it. It, it kind of, sometimes you can see opal, like white opal. Sometimes you'll see petrified wood and it'll have white in it. And it looks like white milk glass, right? But you can't really see through it. Some opal can be more translucent than others. But this is a common opal that you will find is white opal. Um, so it still has water trapped in it. In a, in a microscopic little particles of water are trapped in the stone that gives it that opalescence um, look to it. That's what it is. Common opal colors can be very, very varied. Uh, white to colorless, and then trace elements, usually iron, will help the opal to look orange, fire red, opal, uh, cherry red, watermelon red, white milky opal, green phrase opal. Uh, crystal phrase is almost... Uh, kind of has water trapped in it, from what I understand. Peruvian pink opal, blue opal. I have some beautiful blue opal from Peru. It is gorgeous. Some of it's dark, dark blue. Some of it is a light blue. There's yellow opal, sometimes called honey opal, brown wax opal, yellowish green hyalite, hyalite, hyalite opal. So all of these can be very beautiful and pretty. Now, when they fracture, it kind of breaks a little bit like glass. It kind of concaves out, like when you chip your windshield, right? Um, they talk about sedimentary rocks and even opalized wood. So it's not always fire opal. Of course, precious opal is very sought after, but some of these other colors of opal are very desirable too. The rich orange reds are quite collectible because of inclusions of hematite. Um, fire can refer to uh, the opalescence of precious opal. And red is a color of a common fire opal, but you can find it without fire. Both of them come from central Mexico primarily. Okay, common opal is typically cut as a cabochon. Mexican fire opal occasionally exhibits subtle flashes of greenish-yellow opalescence because it's partially formed silica spherical layers that diffract and reflect only part of the incident light. Uh, Halleite is a common opal. This can be caused uh, can be greenish-yellow caused by traces of iron. And uh, it can do daylight fluorescent, which occurs when sunlight energizes the electrons within the opal. And then you put it in the dark and you will see a greenish yellow hue. So it's kind of cool, kind of glows. It also can have traces of radioactive element uranium in it. So this is why you don't want to lick rocks, right? It could have uh, poison on it. It could have uh, cyanide or arsenic or it could be radioactive, so uh, be careful what you do. Now, opal from Peru. This, this is really neat. I've seen it with dendrix in it, which if you don't know what dendrix is or dendrites are, they look like fern. They're usually dark black, and this is in this clear to opaque opal, a milky, slightly milky, milky opal, um, very beautiful. 
This is from Peru as well. Um, hydrated silica, chalcedony, uh, a complex hydrous magnesium aluminum sulfite can cause these fibrous crystals to have a strong affinity for organic molecules. That's why you can find petrified wood and things like that. The color of Peruvian blue opal is because of tiny inclusions of the copper-bearing mineral chrysocolla. So that is it. Pigments in Peruvian pink opal are reddish-colored. Um, quinines, hydrocarbon compounds that originated as ancient plant material in now-buried lake bottom with a, bals a balsitic environment and a supply of magnesium from the basalt it causes to form with the quinine molecules and become part of the silica gel that solidified into Peruvian pink opal. Spectacular. Peruvian blue opal, which I told you I have some of that. I may sell some. Maybe I'll put it on Etsy. If you want to go to my Etsy site, check it out. I've got a few gemstones and minerals there. I'll be putting more, on, uh, more of them on in the next week. But this Peruvian blue opal is a blue to blue-green color. And dark blue, too. Um, again, it leaches. Uh, apparently, it leached from copper mining district, southern Peru. Unusual color is produced by microscopic inclusions of copper-bearing mineral chrysocolla. Milky opal can be used um, in gemstones uh, for, uh, for art, artwork. Uh, now I can't think what it's called. I was going to tell you what it's called, but... Uh, I, add, I was going to add to this, but they do these cameos. They're called cameos. They'll put a dark stone in the back, like black, like plissamine or something heavy and dark. And they'll put the white in the front and then they'll carve a picture in it. And it gives it this lifelike kind of uh, look, I guess, kind of ghostly lifelike. So white opal is uh, milky opal, is not precious opal. It's the most ab abundant type of uh, gem quality common opal, off-white typically like a moonstone type translucency, warm glow caused by the internal scattering of light. The presence of iron often produces soft bluish or orange undertones. Milky opal is fashioned into beads and capuchons. Phrase opal is distinctive. It is a chrysophrase like green color caused by nickel chronomophore and it is dark spiderweb-like patterns of dendritic opal are created when black magnesium oxides fill tiny fractures in the fractured opal surface. Multicolored banded opal, which has only limited translucency forms and variations in the chemical composition of silica gel during the solidification process. So layering and different minerals cause the different colors and layers to form in banded opal if you're lucky enough to find it. Um, this story was originally from Steve Voynich, and you can read more details on the beautiful colors of common opal just by going to our friends at Rock and Gym. All right, now for those of you who have hung in there with us, I want to tell you about the Eastern Sierras. This was a beautiful land in California, United States of America at one time. It was burnt very badly a few years back. A friend of ours lost their house there. And uh, it has been the scene of a lot of political activity lately. People there, patriots, are uh, fighting to get uh, 
the people in office that they thought they voted for um, in and the people who they voted for who turned out to not really represent them, the people, they're trying to get those people out. It's kind of a neat story called Red, White, and Blueprint. So Eastern Sierra has been a land of many interesting things, good and bad, for hundreds of years, probably uh, thousands, but we're only going to go back about 150 years ago or so. This was a harsh land at the time of the 49ers. There was a ton of gold miners which were sweeping westward, and they were looking at some 200-mile of treacherous travel across the Great Barrier as they sought the most favorable routes. One of the routes that paralleled the Sierra, one of those routes was Brown Mountains. Bitter valleys paralleling the Sierra Nevadas on the east were known only to early explorers and trappers. This would be very, very tough travel. But the beauty and wealth found on the other side made those first explorers not really care. They wanted to get their part. They wanted to fill their pouch with California gold. They would not hesitate. They did not care. You can read a lot of horrible stories of people that didn't make it across the Sierras. One of them's about the Donner family. Maybe you've heard of that. Well, anyway, after the 49ers, within a decade, the backwash of the wave to inflow over and around the Sierras was as restless as the men who'd missed their pots of gold, and they were looking for new bonanzas. They didn't find it there. Mexicans came, Chinese came, Irish came. People came from all over the United States looking for silver, looking for gold. They knew that the Spaniards were here and they wanted to find their Montezuma's uh, amazing pile of gold. They wanted to find their lost city of gold. A lot of them died in the desert, crossing the desert but some of them made it. Gold madness lost little of its intensity as it spread out eastward. Silver and other minerals were sought out as wealth producers too. People wanted that. Camps popped up here and there. There'd be a strike, and soon the hope and encouragement and excitement would die down as the camps would would die. But rumors were rampant. Wonderful big stories of huge gold strikes appeared in newspapers and people were on their way with the hope of a new strike. Many of the mines in eastern Sierra were relatively isolated and inacceptable, which led to the dream and the magic of them thinking there was a pot of gold on the other side. Placer mining was first very popular in the early days. It was easy. Anybody could do it. You had a gold pan, a dry shaker, a rocker, a long tom, you could start getting gold out of the creeks and areas. Also, dry shaking was done. People would run to the hills and stake claims. Bigger companies with money to invest would buy up these claims and search for the rich deposits. Um, They also mined the placer deposits using large dredging equipment, Hydraulic mining forced big water cannons washing away um, sides of hills and mountains, running them through long toms. They were claiming claims, 
drilling shafts and tunnels and developing these mines. Expensive equipment was brought in piece by piece. The railroads built up. People were staking claims in hopes of selling to a large company. When California became a state in 1850, it was hardly prepared to govern these far outposts. So many of these areas, such as the Sierra, the Mariposa, Tulare, and later Fresno, were areas of lawlessness. They flourished without any civil law or control. Mining camps populated by people who were there to escape restrictions were their own law and order where there really was no law and order. The stories of these people and their wild and loose debauchery lives uh, are very colorful. Mining districts were organized in each region eventually and created districts, rules and regulations and claims um, as Congress enacted a general mining law to legitimize, you know, make it legitimate to legalize uh, in May 10th of 1872, the mining laws came into effect. Um, Mono County was established in 1861. It was a very prosperous town of Aurora. The chief reason it was there, it was uh, a county seat. And um, the courthouse was three miles over the line on the Nevada side originally. After two and a half years of occupancy, during which the citizens of Aurora voted for two sets of county officials, one in each state, Mono County finally yielded to the fickled line. Its recorder and treasurer picked up the county records and funds, leaving the bills <laughs> and moved across Bodie until a special election in the spring of 1864 determined a new county seat, which was Bridgeport, the little settlement in Big Meadows where Footbridge crossed the Easter Walker, excuse me, East Walker River. And that was because Walker discovered all sorts of uh, areas are named Walker's Pass and Walker's River. He won honor over the lively mining camp in Monoville down by Mono Lake. Inyo County did not come into existence until 1866. After the creation of Costco County had failed by default, a new town of independence and the Kearsaridge mining camp went off and uh, they fought for the county seat. Independence was being elected as was elected as a better location. Boundary changes were made later. First in 1870, they changed the northern boundary line from Big Pine Creek to northern line to Mount Diablo Baseline, which stands true to this day. That is still a boundary. You can see it on the maps. i got to get a swig of coffee here. The establishment of Mono and Inyo counties gave Eastern California an identity and the right to assert itself in state affairs. So all these things, mining brought about the changes and the 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 borders to be moved that was really where it happened that's what built this country uh to a large extent especially the the west here so this influx of miners they were very interested in the eastern of the sierras that's how it all happened that's how it got divided there was areas that were favorable for farming and grazing 
Uh, there was grain, beef, hay, all these things happened. Prices were inflated in this area to sell to the mining camps at Costco and northward as far as Bodie and Aurora. So um, it wasn't really the miners that made the money. It was the people that sold the, the shovels and the supplies. Conflicts developed between the Native, uh, Native Americans and the newcomers who were taking possession of their land. So it was inevitable. They were people occupying their hunting grounds, um, and there was a sparse amount of food for everyone that was there. There was a severe winter in 1861 and 1862, made things very critical. Raids on herds of cattle um, and bloody wars took place, and uh, shameful instances were usually what resulted instead of righteous victories, according according to uh, uh, Mary De Becker, who wrote the book Mines of the Eastern Sierra. Miners in general um, did not really fight with the Native Americans too much, according according to history. Um, it looks like they went down to the ranches. They were looking for food mostly. Um, soldiers started to get in the area. And then the, uh, the Inyo Range uh, Camp Independence was there to help keep peace in the area, supposedly. Um, all these things became very expensive. There was more than just gold mining there. There was talc, dolomite, sulfur. There was salt in the deserts. All these things, um, discovery of rare herbs that was used for TV tubes back in the 50s and other items that were very well needed throughout history have been mined in this area. You can still see many mines that... Uh, litter the area you need to be careful if you are in that area because you can uh, fall in and and die dogtown and monoville are located uh, dogtown is located just west of present day highway 395 it's about six tenths of a mile south to northernly turn off to bodie uh, there's a plaque that used to be there that marked the site where Cord Norris, a young German, and his Indian wife Mary set up housekeeping in a dugout on Dog Creek where they panned for gold for a living. And uh, that happened in 1857. Of course, once you find gold in an area, then everybody's going to be there. There's going to be a gold rush. And that's potentially what set it off. Dogtown was a bustling little community just two years later. In July 4th, 1859, Dogtown um, resident named Chris wandered over the hill, which was from the watershed between Walker River and Mono Lake. He stopped to rest and picked up some of the dirt around him, amazed to find it rich with gold. Of course, news spread around like, by, like magic, and residents of Dogtown moved quickly to stake claims ahead of outsiders who poured in over from Sonora, and Mono passes from Carson Valley and up through Owens Valley. Soon all the ground was claimed for miles. The first gold rush in the Sierra had officially occurred at this point. There was a frantic rush to fill all the needs of the booming mining camp. Lumber was whipsawed for use before any of the sawmills could be brought into production. The first homes were dugouts and cabins. Very, very primitive. 
The first 31 buildings erected, 22 were liquor shops. First things first, right? <laughs> um, they brought in 11 mule ditch to bring in water from Virginia Creek for hydraulic operations and prepared for winter. Now, it gets so cold there that they couldn't do the hydraulic mining in the winter. That, that would just completely stop. They could not do that. Um, these prospectors made it through, for the most part, in their crude, um, crude uh, fortresses or, or homesteads. And 150 people survived that first bitter winter. Spring, renewed activity happened in Monteville, flourished briefly. There was a report of rich silver, and uh, that was a magic word back then. Silver was pretty expensive, and it was hailed as another Comstock. Lodestone, load mining was a new way to wealth. The population moved again, and people were working there and trying to find more gold and silver. Chorus Cord Norst and his wife had chosen to remain in Dogtown during the rise and fall of Monoville, and this was to be their home for many years, and uh, they would find enough gold in Dog Creek to buy their supplies and a new uh, county seat in Bridgeport. So there's no way of knowing exactly how much was taken from Dogtown and Mono Diggings because this was great much before... Um, they had all the offices there to record it, and a lot of people just didn't record it. But the estimates have been in the millions of dollars. Lesser placer deposits extended upon the basis of the Sierra. Uh, Sluice box and rocker were common, and hydraulic mining was carried on as the largest deposits and now are only evidenced by mounds of gravel, hopefully grown over by now. In 1880... The Virginia Creek Hydraulic Company operated very profitably on 3,200 acres in the old mono diggings. There still remains a Dogtown Stone Cabins. Um, this was back in the 60s, so they're probably not there anymore. Monoville over the ridge southeastward to present highway on the north of Conway Summit. The old water ditches in Virginia Creek may still be traced on a hillside. The cinnamon cut, said to have yielded $80,000 in gold, is a 1,700 by 200 foot scar on the landscape. Even though the gravels of the old mono diggings have been worked and reworked over 100 years, still many show a flash of color in their pans, which is all it takes to get that gold fever and want to go get gold. So with that, guys, we're going to call it the end of our episode tonight. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, remember rock hounds don't die, they petrify.